Welcome to our Soul Food Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. We pray you take your word, Lord, wherever we are at in relation to you. You take your word, and I pray it will be that that sharp, double-edged sword, and it would pierce our hearts this morning to what we need to learn. That's these things in your name. Amen. Thank you. When Vincent Van Gogh walked into the pulpit in October 1876 to preach his very first sermon, he had big shoes to fill. Both his father and grandfather were known for their preaching ability. He delivered his first sermon and he felt so good about it that he sent the manuscript to his brother Theo with this comment. When I stood in the pulpit, I felt like someone emerging from a dark underground vault into the friendly daylight. And it's a wonderful thought that from now on, wherever I go, I'll be preaching the gospel. It was a wonderful thought, but it wasn't meant to be. After working a couple of years as a lay pastor and making huge sacrifices such as giving away all that he owned, and sleeping on floors, Van Gogh was eventually told that the ministry just wasn't for him. However, art, like church work, was another Van Gogh family business. Vincent's uncle was an art dealer, as was his brother. And though Vincent may not have been a natural businessman like them, he did have some artistic talent, which he recognized in himself when he sketched miners and peasants during his downtime as a pastor. With no other employment options available, in 1881, Vincent moved to the Netherlands and dedicated himself to becoming a painter. Vincent came out of the gate with unbridled enthusiasm for learning his craft. One letter to his brother read, I'm drawing a great deal and I think I'm getting better. But on other occasions, he would question his ability by writing, It's a gloomy enough prospect to have to say to myself that perhaps the painting I am doing will never be of any value whatsoever. It didn't help that his peers cared nothing for his artistic ability. Most of his days were spent shuffling between discouragement and absolute despair, especially in his later years. Unlike artists like Rembrandt, who were discovered early and paid enormous commissions to paint for wealthy aristocrats and royalty, Van Gogh toiled for over a decade without ever even catching one break. But the thing I want us to see is that history has a much better view of Vincent Van Gogh. After only 10 years, his flurry of artistic activity left an immense body of work over 900 paintings in all. The truly ironic thing is, is that Van Gogh's paintings and drawings are on display in museums around the world. And yet he died thinking he was a failure. We need to be careful 
that we never allow the hard times that we go through to define us or cause us to doubt God's care for us. God always looks at the end game and the big picture. King David is known as Israel's greatest king. But you have to wonder, if like Vincent, as he was running for his life because his son Absalom has stolen the throne, you have to wonder if David felt like Vincent van Gogh. I mean, with even of all God's gifts to him, he was still running. And you have to just imagine what was going through his mind here in chapter 17. Unlike Joseph, who went from the pit to the palace, David has gone from the palace to the pit. And yet we know that God's favor was still resting on him. Likewise, what if sometimes the only way for the Lord to truly bless us is to place us in total obscurity for a season? Being hidden from the crowd, tucked away in some secret crevasse of the world, would have a way of teaching us lessons that popularity and success cannot. During this time, David would write 11 different psalms that are still blessing the people of God today. What does that mean to us this morning? Simply this. Sometimes we have to go through difficult times in order for God to develop us to do what we were created for. So thankfully, there is a good reason that God sends people like you, me, Van Gogh, and David into obscurity. You're not going to like the answer, but it is somewhat comforting to at least know that an answer exists. What is the good reason? Here it is, courtesy of Oswald Chambers. He writes, God gives us the vision then he takes us down into the valley to batter us into the shape of the vision. And yet, it is in the valley that so many of us faint and give way. What is Chambers saying? I think what he's wanting to convey is that God places us in obscure places and situations because we are not ready yet. Our spiritual check engine light is on, and so outside forces must be brought to bear to shape us into the kind of people who can handle the vision that we have been given. Until that happens, doors remain shut. This happens because God knows that without the valley, the vision will never come to fruition. Well, with that rather long-winded introduction, let's look at verse 1. Furthermore, Ahithophel said to Absalom, Please let me choose 12,000 men that I may arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and exhausted and terrify him, so that all the people who are with him will flee. Then I will strike down the king alone, and I will bring back all the people to you. The return of everyone depends on the man you seek. Then all the people will be at peace. So the plan pleased Absalom and all the elders of Israel. Having achieved his first purpose in taking over the royal authority, Absalom now has to deal with the second matter and make sure that David and his followers didn't return and take back the kingdom. The solution was simple but drastic. He had to find his father 
and kill him. For guidance, Absalom turned to his two counselors for help. First up is Ahithophel. Ahithophel begins by asking for a contingent of 12,000 men. And so he says, just give me 12,000 men, not twice as many, not three times as many, not even 10 times as many. He wanted 20 times what he knew that David had. Uh, this may have been a backhanded compliment and perhaps a grudging respect to the fighting skill of David and his men. And his plan was a good one. Use an army that could move quickly, attack at night, and have David's death as the one greatest goal. Ahithophel would then bring back David's followers, and they would then swear loyalty to the new king. It would have been a quick victory with probably very little blood shed. Like his initial advice to Absalom, this was careful, calculated, and concise. Ahithophel had thought things through. He had a clear and decisive plan, and quite candidly, it was brilliant. He would, he would assemble a contingent of men who would represent all of Israel. He may have intended to choose a thousand from each tribe for the twelve thousand to represent the twelve tribes of Israel. This would symbolically involve the whole nation in the overthrow of David and prepare the ground for reuniting the nation after this event. Ahithophel intended to take full advantage of the weariness and the despondency of David and his men. In his judgment, an immediate attack with a superior force would send them fleeing in all directions. It was also important to move against David as soon as possible, he said. In fact, it had to be tonight. The strategic advantage of immediate action was crucial to Ahithophel's plan. The night suited Ahithophel's plan. He wanted David to die in obscurity, witnessed by as few people as possible. But the darkness was also fitting at another level, in that it was a dark plan. Centuries later, when Judas went out to initiate his plan to betray Jesus, the account carefully notes for us, and it was night. Note that Ahithophel put himself front and center by using phrases like, let me now choose, I will arise, I will come, and so on. He wanted to be the general of this army because he wanted personally to supervise the murder of his enemy, King David. Basically, basically Ahithophel is saying, I will come against the true king and bring him down. That's not the first time that has been tried, by the way. Listen to these words out of Isaiah chapter 14 that are ultimately ascribed to Satan himself. Listen for all the times you hear the phrase, I will. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, here it comes, I will ascend to heaven, I will raise my throne above the stars of God, I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. There's something inherently evil 
during those times any person tries to exalt themselves over God. And yet the argument could be made that every single time I choose to rebel against what I know God's word says about a situation, I'm never more like Satan than at that time. So, what should I do instead? What is the alternative to exalting myself above God and his ways? We have the perfect example in the life of Christ. Listen to how Paul describes him in Philippians chapter 2. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out only for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Have this attitude in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Did you hear all those words that describe a servant's heart? Jesus emptied himself by becoming a bondservant. He then humbled himself by becoming obedient even to the point of dying naked on a cross. It's also important to note in those two passages I read, Satan wanted to exalt himself and was humbled, while Jesus chose to humble himself and was therefore exalted. And that is still how God does things, my friends. He will never exalt anyone who tries first to exalt themselves. All of us in here are going to fashion our choices and thus our lives around either exalting ourselves over God and becoming our own trinity of me, myself, and I, or humbling ourselves in obedience and servitude by following the lowly Latin Nazarene. And if we think we don't have to make that choice consciously, by default, we are choosing the way of sin and the way of death. If you are unsure where you stand this morning, please see me after the service and I'll be happy to talk to you. There in verse 4, the expression, all the elders of Israel, only occurs three times in the books of Samuel. First, when they demanded a king. Secondly, when they anointed David as king over Israel. And here where they decided to destroy the king that God had given them. Look at verse 5 with me. Then Absalom said, Now call Hushai the archite also, and let us hear what he has to say. When Hushai had come to Absalom, Absalom said to him, Ahithophel has spoken thus, shall we carry out his plan? If not, you speak. So Hushai said to Absalom, This time the advice that Ahithophel has given is not good. Moreover, Husha said, You know your father and his men, that they are mighty men, they are fierce, like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. And your father is an expert in warfare, and will not spend the night with the people. Behold, he has now hidden himself in one of the caves or another place, 
and it will be when he falls on them at the first attack, that whoever hears it will say, There has been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. And even the one who is valiant, whose heart is like the heart of a lion, will completely lose heart. For all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man, and those who are with him are valiant men. For some reason, Absalom wanted a second opinion. And this seems sensible. After all, a great deal was at stake. Perhaps, too, the young man was a little uneasy about a plan that had no active role for him. Ahithophel's plan was all about what Ahithophel would do. Perhaps Absalom was thinking, what about me? We'll speak more on that in a moment. The first words out of Hushah's mouth must have sucked all of the air out of the room. He had the audacity to say that this time the advice that Ahithophel had given was not good. I can almost imagine Ahithophel's jaw dropping when he heard these words. This may be the first time in his entire life he has ever heard those words come out of someone else's mouth. His reputation was that he was never wrong when he gave advice. He probably had a t-shirt that said, I thought I was wrong once, but I was mistaken. This was a bold way to start given Ahithophel's unrivaled reputation. However, Hushai acknowledged this by saying this time. Really, it means this one time. In other words, even Ahithophel cannot be expected to be right all the time. On this one occasion, Hushai said, Ahithophel has given advice that is not good. His first words were, you. This was no doubt music to Absalom's ears. Ahithophel's advice had begun, let me, and only referred to Absalom at the end in an entirely passive role. Hushai's speech probably sounded better to a proud young man's ears from the very first word. Hushai's first sentence was gently flattering and subtly challenged Ahithophel's right to be involved in this at all. In essence, Hushai was saying, You know, I appreciate you asking my advice, Absalom, but you don't need me to tell you about your father's strength. You know implied that Ahithophel did not know. The problem with Ahithophel's advice at Hushai is that he doesn't seem to know what you know very well, Absalom. As for focusing only on the murder of David, Absalom knew that his father was a great tactician and a mighty warrior surrounded by experienced soldiers who feared nothing. All of them were angry because they had been driven from their homes. They were like a bear robbed of her cubs. We're going to see that Hushai is the master of the metaphor. Furthermore, he said, David was too smart to stay with the troops. He would hide in a safe place where he couldn't be trapped. Not only that, his men would be on guard and would set ambushes and kill anybody who came near. David's army, he said, would be too seasoned to be unprepared for any kind of sneak attack. And so a sudden attack simply wouldn't work. And if the invading army were repelled, word would spread quickly that Absalom's forces had been defeated and then all of his men would flee. Absalom would then begin and end his military career with a disaster. 
Hushai proceeded to use his rhetorical skill to stir up and play on the fears of Absalom and those who had joined him by reminding them that David was a formidable opponent. He and his men had defeated every adversary who had ever been foolish enough to take them on. Ever since that day, Goliath had crashed to the ground. No one had ever outwitted or overpowered David and his men. They were known kingdom-wide as mighty men. Now, Ahithophel's plan depended on them being weary and discouraged. Hushai said, you know better than that, Absalom. You know that instead they are enraged and they are embittered. Do you really think it's a good idea to attack David under these conditions? So we see that unlike Ahithophel's straightforward, honest counsel, Hushai employed every manipulative and deceptive trick he had at his disposal. His speech used flowery language and flattery. Now this was designed to distract Absalom from the genius of Ahithophel's plan. Because Ahithophel's plan was outstanding. Had they followed his plan with 12,000 men, chances are David would be a dead man walking. One commentator said, Who shot under man Ahithophel's advice with a mixture of flattery, fear, and rhetoric? Hushai's speech did not use facts, but played on Absalom's fears which were stirred up, his pride which was stroked, and the power of language to manipulate the imagination. Verse 11, please. But I counsel that all Israel be surely gathered to you from Dan to Beersheba, as the sand that is by the sea in abundance, and that you personally go into battle. So we shall come to him in one of the places where he can be found, and we will fall on him as the dew falls on the ground. And of him and all the men who are with him, not even one will be left. If he withdraws into a city, then all Israel shall bring ropes to that city, and we will drag it into the valley until not even a small stone is found there. Then Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the Archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. For the Lord had ordained to thwart the good counsel of Ahithophel, so that the Lord might bring calamity on Absalom. Hushai now presented the plan that overcame all these difficulties. Directed by the Lord, Hushai took an entirely different approach and focused on the ego of the young king. Hushai's reply wasn't a series of I will statements about himself, but rather a series of statements about the new king. First, the new king himself must lead the army, and it must be the biggest army he could assemble from Dan to Beersheba. This suggestion had to appeal to Absalom's inflated ego, and in his imagination, I bet he could see himself leading this great army into victory. Now, of course, he wasn't a seasoned military man, but what difference did that make? Just what a way to begin his reign. You see, Absalom had itching ears, and like Paul says, a time will come when men will not endure sound doctrine, but instead they will have itching ears and will accumulate teachers telling them what they want to hear. And so, when you got a young man who is in rebellion against God, who is full of vengeance, and you say to him, as Ahithophel did, I'm going to offer you sex power and glory. Do you think they will jump on that? 
But instead, Husha says, But I counsel that all of Israel be gathered, and here's the key word, to you. Remember, he is speaking to Absalom. You can almost imagine Absalom thinking, To me, huh? Can I ride a big white horse and my hair blows in the wind? Well, yes, yes, you can. You just had to know that would thrill him. Hushai draws again on this rhetoric in verse 12. As the dew falls on the ground suggests a silent but vast and inevitable event. There will be no escape, just as nothing is untouched by the morning dew. Ahithophel's matter-of-fact speech was forgotten as Hushai's grand plan, punctuated with great vivid mental pictures, gripped the hearts and minds of Absalom and his leaders. This is what's interesting. Ahithophel's simple and honest advice was given in 42 Hebrew words. Hushai's descriptive alternative took 129 words. The greater number of words, not the quality of the advice, won the day. The interesting thing to me, though, is in 2 Samuel 15:31, David prayed that Ahithophel would give foolish counsel. Ahithophel's counsel, however, wasn't foolish. It was brilliant. What does that teach us? God is not going to answer David's prayer the way that David prayed it. Ahithophel's advice is not going to be foolish, but perfect in regards to killing King David. We'll see next week why God does this. But I can't tell you how thankful that I am that Christ ever lives to make intercession for the saints. That's what's so great about Jesus as your high priest who always intercedes for us. And so while I am praying what I think should happen, I can just imagine Jesus saying, Father, what Bill really means is this or that. I mean, he thinks he knows what should happen, but you and I know that his wife still has to match his ties. But the older I get in the Lord, the more I understand the foolishness and the presumption of dictating to the Lord what he must do or how he must work. And instead of just having the wisdom of saying, Father, you know what's right in this situation. Now, here's what I think, but only you know what is right. Therefore, Thy kingdom come, and thy will be done. And so we see that the Lord answered David's prayer, not by actually making it Phil's advice foolish, but by making it appear foolish to Absalom through the clever words of Hushai. This is one of the many examples in the Bible of the sovereignty of God, which is absolute in that nothing occurs outside of his control and human responsibility in that, humans are completely accountable to God for what they do. What Absalom had done was from the point of the view the Lord's doing, and yet at the same time, Absalom was fully responsible in doing this, and the Lord will deal with him accordingly. I believe that no explanation that compromises the sovereignty of God or reduces human responsibility is true according to the Bible. The fact that our minds cannot completely understand how this can be is beside the point. It's sufficient for us to know that it is so, and it is good that it is so. 
in closing, we are seeing, and we'll see again next week, that God is the unseen player in all these events. He is mentioned nowhere, but he keeps appearing. And so we see all these different actors in the drama, but God is over it like a puppet master. And so God brings about his sovereign purpose. They asked Francis Schaeffer one time about the tension between sovereignty and free will. And Schaeffer replied, I believe in a God that can let men do anything that they want and yet leave nothing to chance. Schaefer says, men can act within the purposes of God and still leave nothing to chance. Do I completely understand that? Nope. But personally, I'm glad there are some things about God that exceed my wisdom and my intellect. Otherwise, that would mean that God is only as smart as I am. And I don't want a God who can't find his glasses half the time. They say if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. If that's true, I am positive God has chuckled at me quite a few times. But I'm in good company. Let me read you something from 1 Corinthians concerning the Apostle Paul. This is chapter 16, verse 5. He writes, Now I will come to you when I pass through Macedonia, for I am passing through Macedonia. And it may be that I will remain or even spend the winter with you, that you may send me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay a while with you if the Lord permits. But I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost. And so here's the Apostle Paul's plan. He's in the city of Ephesus, which is modern-day Turkey, and he plans to travel from Ephesus into Macedonia, which is northern Greece, and then later in the year work his way down to Corinth to spend the winter. Well, you couldn't travel from Corinth to Jerusalem in the winter because of the weather. And so Paul says, I'm looking forward to spending the winter with you, and then we can take the offering that you gave to the saints at Jerusalem. This was his sincere desire of what he thought should happen. Guess what? None of that happened. Why? Because it wasn't in God's plan for the life of the Apostle Paul. And so God is always in control. And isn't that good to know? When times are bleak and evil men are afoot and deception and perversion and rebellion abounds in our culture, let us always remember that none of this causes the Almighty to wring his hands or vacate the throne. And so let us commit our lives to him who is faithful from the beginning to the very end. Lord, that is that amazing grace that we cling to. And Father, there's many things that I don't understand, but the things that I do understand are far and above what I need to trust you. You have been faithful for decades. And I know, Lord, that anyone who puts their trust in you, you say, will not be ashamed. I pray, Father, you'd work within every heart at the sound of my voice and reveal yourself to them to be either a savior, a sanctifier, or an encourager. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.